0: Hi, this is Samir Kaji, your host of the Venture Unlocked Podcast, and on this episode, I'll introduce you to someone that truly epitomizes Hustle and Hustle co-founder, Elizabeth Yin. For those unfamiliar, Hustle Fund is a pre-seed focus firm based in the Bay Area. In the episode, Elizabeth provides her experience as an emerging manager on things like raising your first fund, the importance of brand, portfolio construction, and the true economics of running a micro VC fund. Now, let's get into the episode to hear all of that and more. Hey Elizabeth, great to have you on the show.
1: Thanks Amir. thanks for having me.
0: I'm excited to have you for so many reasons, particularly how thoughtful you and Eric have been in building Hustle Fund. But before we dig into a few things that I wanna cover, can you maybe give us a background on the Hustle Fund? What was the inspiration that you and Eric saw? And And generally speaking, what was the opportunity that really launched this?
1: Yeah, certainly. So quick background on myself, I previously was an entrepreneur, and I sold my company in 2014. And after that, like so many people, I got into the seed investing game, wearing a few different hats. I was an angel investor, and I also previously ran the accelerator at 500 startups. So it was from those two experiences that I realized that actually, there were a lot of seed investors, and we certainly see more today. And and by that, I mean people who are willing to invest in a company when there's a product and maybe actually a fair bit of revenue. I would even say, call it $10,000 a month in revenue. But there were not really people who were investing super early, like pre-revenue or half-baked product. That was quite rare, at least at the time. I think the only person I knew who was just starting to do anything in that area was Charles Hudson and he was just getting going with his fund. But I certainly felt like, gosh, getting to $10,000 a month in revenue is, it's, it's a lot. Like even though it's early, it's a lot and it would be really great for the ecosystem. And also I thought you could make some good money by going in that early. So that was the opportunity that Eric and I saw, and and we wanted to start a pre-seed fund to fund that stage.
0: I'd be curious, as you did raise the first fund, and you wrote a great post, I thought, on how to raise a fund, the journey that you went through, and some of the things that you learned along the way. I'd love to understand one aspect in particular that I think would surprise a lot of people. You met a lot of LPs uh, during the fund one fundraise what was that process like you know what observations did you have during that and what did that actually look like on a day-to-day basis
1: so we met over 700 potential investors between eric and myself over the course of about nine months to raise fund one and so it, it was a lot and i throw that quantity out there because i i don't really think most people realize just how many potential investors you need to meet and I think the immediate question is, well, OK, well, why? Like, why so many people? And your fund is only $11.5 million, Like, what's going on? And I think one of my biggest learnings is that it is really hard to qualify leads. And by that, I mean it's really hard to know, before meeting with someone, whether they would actually be interested in investing in your fund. And so as such, you know, we ended up just meeting a ton of people. And frankly speaking, I think even looking back, I still can't find any correlations between who came in and their wealth level or their interest level or whatever. It was pretty random. And I think that is one of the challenging pieces of all of
0: this. You talked to 700 plus, which obviously is a is a massive number. Um, presumably a lot of those are family offices, high net worth individuals. But before embarking on that, um, one of the things that you wrote about, And for those that haven't read Elizabeth's post, I will add a link to the Venture Unlocked Substack. Note, it's a must read for anyone starting. I'd be curious in terms of how do you get in front of all these family offices? How do you get in front of these high net worth individuals? What is the way to actually build out that network?
1: That's a good question because we definitely did not have 700 rich friends. So I think the way I see it is like, peeling back uh, different layers of an onion or something along those lines. You know, first you have your inner circle, friends, family, you know, maybe people you worked with previously at Google or wherever. But then depending on your network, that will lead to a certain amount of money and it will vary for every person. For us, I would say our immediate network led to about two to three million in commits So, I would say we were fortunate in that, yes, we do have a good network, and that was relatively straightforward to go to wealthy friends, especially in tech, mostly individuals. But then beyond that, this is where everybody gets stuck, regardless of how well connected they are. And I think this is what people don't realize because I've talked with so many fund managers. Some of them, you know, like either are, um, you know, very close with billionaires or super well known themselves. And surprisingly, everybody gets stuck. It's just a matter of what what level you get stuck. Like maybe you get stuck at 15 million instead of my 2 million or 3 million, but everyone gets stuck. So then the question is, okay, well, how do you get unstuck and meet all these other people? Like of the 700, I would say probably about 500 were people we just didn't know. So we had to essentially ask every person we met, you know, can you think of one or two people who may be a good fit for this regardless of whether they said yes or no or, or whatever we asked everybody i even pitched my eye doctor so that i mean that's the kind of pitching you should be doing like if you go to a party and there are a bunch of you know facebook engineers there they should definitely hear about this even if you don't know them like you need to be um you know telling everybody about your fund and so that's what we did And obviously most people are kind of like, meh, whatever. But there are actually people who respond well, who are like, oh, that's interesting. I would love to learn more. And then from that, you can get a good meeting. So that's how we started to go about it. Like this is, you know, from friends. We got to meet other friends, like through their one or two introductions. Another thing we did was we asked our friends to throw... Events and by events I mean that very loosely, like you know a breakfast or a lunch or a dinner on a weekend or something where they would just gather all of their friends, but but their rich friends that we you know ask them to invite, and then pitch them there. You know people get very skittish about doing introductions for the purpose of money because it can be kind of awkward, but no one is really skittish about throwing a you know a lunch or a dinner party with their friends and then just letting you figure out how to pitch. So that's how we were able to meet friends and friends of friends and from there, friends of friends of friends and just kind of move outward. And that's where most of the 500 leads or so that we didn't know came from.
0: That's a great story and actually speaks to the uh, the Hustle brand. I'd be curious as you looked at these 500 leads, you know, one of the things that we often talk about with limited partners is there's so many VCs out there, it's really hard to separate signal from noise. How are you able to separate signal-to-noise with all of these individuals and family offices? And how did you just, from a time standpoint, manage that large of a funnel?
1: With all fundraising, whether it's for raising for a fund or a startup or whatever, it's really important to try to qualify a lead as quickly as possible. Like, is this person actually interested? And if they're not, I personally believe it is better to not try to spend time convincing that person and move on and try to find more leads. In fact, actually, I think one of the best pieces of advice that I got, and actually from Charles, uh, at the beginning of this journey was don't run out of leads. And it may sound so simple, and I didn't think much of it at the time, but as I went along, I realized, oh gosh, yeah, like that one piece of advice is absolutely right because you're constantly trying to quickly figure out who's not in, which means you need to find other leads who are interested. And so we actually tried to qualify everybody within the first meeting um, and and just like be very direct and open and honest. Like obviously we give our pitch and you know, ask people, so what do you think? And Um, really try to get at what people are really thinking, even if it meant that it was a no. I think sometimes people are a little bit scared to get the no, and they don't really press hard enough, but we wanted people to just tell us no, because it means that we could move on and save time and find somebody
0: else. Yeah, it's a great tip on qualifying, and I think, you know, asking the direct question is is definitely the, the way to go, even if it does result in a no. Some of those no's are obviously temporary no's, and it could be for a later fund. You had mentioned on the post that you were very intentional when you went out and fundraised that you were building a firm and that there was a long-term plan. How did this change the mental framework in terms of approaching Fund One?
1: Yeah, and I think that, you know, building a fund, the way to think about it is definitely about building an institution. You know, what is your 30-year plan? LPs do want to hear about it because, well, A, they want to know that you're going to at least be in business for this fund. Uh, I was actually shocked. One of our LPs shared with us a list of funds that he was interested in investing in in 2018. We were on there, and this was before he invested. Um, But so were about nine or 10 other funds. And those nine or or 10 other funds didn't even get off the ground. Like, I was just amazed that there are a lot of people out there who will just never even get their fund done. And either it's because they... like they didn't get enough interest such that it wasn't worthwhile or you know they just couldn't get anything together or whatever it is i don't really know but that's the first step lps are trying to figure out who's actually serious who's actually going to close a fund successfully and then i think beyond that like who is going to you know for the long-term thinkers who's going to have the mindset of let's build a brand and attract good deal flow and all of that from day one because they're looking towards the long term. And all of that is something that needs to be conveyed in the story. You know, I think another way of putting it is a question that we often got in our pitch was, well, how are you differentiated or, you know, how are you going to get deal flow And I think the honest answer is, well, when you're a fund, money is a commodity and there are thousands of other funds. So to a certain extent, nobody's differentiated. But the way to differentiate, regardless of your thesis, because there's so many people going after the same geo or the same demographics or the same industries or verticals or whatever it is, the way to differentiate is by building a brand. So what is your plan to build a brand? And I think to really put that in concrete terms, I would say Saster is probably the best example of it. Like there's certainly plenty of other SaaS funds, but Saster has built a brand and that is what LPs are looking for. What is your path to doing the equivalent of that?
0: You touched on something that I think is really important and with the uh, the number of emerging funds out there, and you know we do a lot of tracking of this. And the number that we have, just in the U.S. alone, is about 1,500 firms that have formed since the uh, global financial crisis, which is a staggering number. And you're right, differentiation is a very nebulous thing, and it's really hard to understand exactly what it means. But as you think about brand. Where's brand most helpful? I mean, you know, if you look at a t- traditional fund, it's sourcing, it's winning deals, it's picking deals, it's the post-deal help. Building a brand in terms of the way you're articulating it, where does it help the most?
1: I think it helps in all of that. Certainly, so many of our deals that we have done have had a touchpoint to either my blog or the events we've done within Hustle Fund. I think the surprising thing is that also prospective LPs read all of this and consume all of this, even if the messaging isn't targeted towards them per se. Because LPs want to know, well, (laughs) how does this fund manager think? And what are they doing? And, And I think to a certain extent, you know, what is the movement that we are joining? I mean, obviously, this is about making money. But there are many emotional reasons why people invest as well, and they have to be bought into all of that. And I think building all of that content is important for both sides, the deal flow side and uh, the fundraising side. So
0: going back you know, to the fundraise for a moment, you successfully raised fund one. You've now successfully raised fund two. So congr- congratulations on that. Thank you. And uh, the fund two is nearly three times as big. How helpful were the efforts that you did with fund one, you know, in building a larger fund for fund two? What was the major challenge in, in stepping up almost 3X? And what did you do between fund one and fund two from a fundraising standpoint?
1: The most helpful piece of advice that I received about raising a fund two from emerging managers who were just, you know, slightly ahead of us by a year or two was that don't stop fundraising after fund one you have to keep going. And so I think when people think, okay, I'm setting out to embark on an 18 month fundraising schedule for fund one, it's actually more like three or four years. Because as soon as you finish raising fund one, you know, when you think about it, you've exhausted all of your immediate network for fund one. Oftentimes they're not gonna re up in fund two because they're individuals, they're friends of yours, unless you're super rich, they don't have the capital to invest again. And you haven't returned their money either to reinvest. And then, and then you have also started going beyond your network to friends and friends of friends. Um, and you've also, to a certain extent, exhausted that as well. So for fund two, when you have no results that you can point to, you're still trying to work on the friends of friends or friends of friends of friends. And it just gets harder. So it's really important to do two things. One is to keep fundraising because it's going to be harder and also to keep building the relationships that didn't come into fund one to work on them for fund two and actually we did have investors who passed on us or didn't come in in time for fund one who did end up coming in in fund two so cultivating those relationships is really important i think that's one thing that we did well and i think to the extent of even though that fund two is a harder fund to raise because you have no results yet but you, you've exhausted your immediate network. On the flip side, it is a bit easier than, let's say, raising money for a startup in this regard, where you know would-be funders uh, for your funds could come in in fund one, fund two, fund three, fund four, fund five, etc., cetera, because they're all sort of the same in format, unlike a pre-seed fund would never come into your Series B. So you can continue to cultivate the relationship over years, and we've done that by sending monthly updates that go out on the first of every month on the dot we we continue to send you know one-on-one emails just personal emails um to investors who were close but you know didn't come in and build that relationship over time
0: now moving away from fundraising for a second and focusing on something that i think is really unique about the firm which is the portfolio construction model most seed funds we see have a fairly predictable construction of the portfolio 20 to 40 companies about half of the fund invested in initial checks, the other half in reserves. Your model is decidedly different. Can you walk us through what it is and what was the thinking behind the, uh, the non-traditional model?
1: I think taking a, a quick rewind on the clock. So I previously was um, a partner at 500 Startups and ran their accelerator program for almost three years. And I led four batches and was part of a fifth. And so that was approximately 200 companies or so. And and what I noticed was there are a lot of things that you can discern in a pitch. Certainly you can ask lots of questions about, you know, the business, the problem they're solving, the solution, et cetera. But my learnings from running an accelerator and watching all these companies come into my office space to work was that there were also so many things that I could not learn from a pitch. For example... Uh, how the f- co-founders are doing like are they getting into fights all the time? do they get along well? what is their communication style, etc a lot of the personal problems uh, that show up in teams I definitely learned a lot about while I was running an accelerator. Other things like can a founder learn new skills? can they level up in this way? can they hire? can they execute with speed? A lot of questions around velocity of activities and kind of where our name Hustle Fund comes from, you can't figure out in a pitch. And I've also coached enough companies to know that all those up and to the right graphs are not necessarily the, the most accurate. It's a snapshot, and I'm not suggesting that companies are lying, but it's a snapshot that is carefully determined uh, from having you know helped a lot of teams with their demo day pitches. So. You don't get a lot of accurate information at the pitch. You get a lot of accurate information from watching teams work. And I found that when I was at 500 Startups, that was incredibly informative to watch people work. I just learned so much. And I actually believe that kind of like with hiring, it's a lot easier to hire somebody after working with them than it is from just interviewing them. And this is why companies do internships and then at the end of the summer they make offers to the ones they the people they like. So tying this back to Hustle Fund, I felt like it is a much more fair and and better model to actually invest most of your dollars based on execution versus talking. And that's essentially what our model is you know we will write a small twenty-five thousand dollar investment check in many companies we will work with them and you know we'll, we'll both learn a lot about he, how each other works right like very often founders don't know what they're getting into in working with uh, an investor and so we learn as much about our founders as they learn about us and then where things work out uh, we may invest more money um, and that's something that we mutually agree upon and usually that happens a, a, you know, months or even over a year later. But sometimes it happens sooner than that, a few weeks later.
0: So the visceral reaction to that, and, you know, I think a lot of LPs may say, well, it is a lot of checks. How do you actually manage that that number of companies? And how do you de- determine and stay close enough to those companies at scale to determine which ones you upscale in and upsize your, your checks? How do you manage that type of volume?
1: It's a good question. I think it's a question that a lot of um portfolio managers of, uh, for lack of a better phrase, spray and pray shops (laughs) get, Um, and certainly a question that, you know, all the accelerators get as well. And um, I I think actually, you know, in this day and age, a a big part of it is processes and technology, if I'm going to be brutally honest. Like, this is an industry that is very archaic and tends to do things in in ways that you would not expect your startups to do things so for us for example we everything from when a company gets to us on first touch point to when they become um a company in our portfolio and to the work after that all of that gets streamlined through a process like whether if samir you send me a warm referral of a startup or somebody wants to get in touch with us cold it's the same process we send everybody to our our homepage. They fill out the form. I think on the rare occasion, if I forget, I end up having to fill out the form for a company, and then um, that's how we go through our triaging process. And from there, every company has an entry. And then once a company has an entry and they become a portfolio company, that's when we uh, start, you know, keeping all of our notes together on a company. We uh, work with our companies in both individual and scaled ways. We run something called Redwood School, which is not an accelerator, but it is a program to teach companies tactical growth. Um, We certainly, you know, collect a lot of data from that, whether it's quantitative or qualitative, and keep that with every record of a company. And we, you know, we just like follow a company all the way through. And that's how we uh, essentially you know keep everything together as far as the work we do and how that scales um, i alluded to redwood school and that's a program so we're able to essentially scale content in education and work we also you know have very generous um, mentors volunteer mentors who help us with that as well and work with our companies one-on-one so it's not just oh i'm doing all the work with these companies um, and then of course we will meet with our companies uh, especially in the beginning one on one you know a, a handful of times a lot of our due diligence is essentially backloaded then front loaded we will make a very quick investment decision and then you know while another firm might spend weeks doing due diligence we use that time to actually work with the company and hopefully help them out with our network of introductions or with you know tactical help around um, thinking through their unit economics or whatnot.
0: I like how systematic you are in your process of driving value to portfolio companies, but I'm curious in terms of how you determine which companies to put more capital in, in follow-ons.
1: Taking a step back, in my view, what makes for a good company? And and I think every investor has a different thesis around it, but for me, it's basically two things at Preseed. Uh, one is team, and the other is something that I call market pull, which is essentially the unit economics are really good such that you can throw customer acquisition resources behind it and it will really sing. So, those are the kind of the two things. And on the team side, um, you know, obviously any information we collect about teams is very qualitative. Um, you know, what is it like to work with the team? Are they coachable? Are they defensive? Do they take feedback well? Do they iterate with speed? Are the co-founders in arguments? Like things like that. Um, on the market pull side, that is very interesting. It's, it's both quantitative and qualitative. So qu- qualitative would be, and also somewhat related to team, but like how many experiments are getting done in these areas? How promising are these areas? That's, that's a bit qualitative. But there are teams that actually end up fairly early on. Um, I would I wouldn't say they're quite a product market fit, but have really strong unit economics, and that's a lot of luck. And so I would say that it is really important for us to be able to get conviction on the market pull side. I think we have many portfolio companies where we have actually so much conviction on the team side, but the Uh, but the market pull isn't promising or isn't promising yet. And so I think the way we think about it is um, we are very interested in essentially looking for the beginnings of that market pull. Um, You know, to me, that actually is more important than the team. And this is where investors will actually (laughs) debate, you know, ad nauseum on that. But I think market pull is very hard to find. I think once you find it, it is, you can mess up a lot and still, you know, continue to ride that. But the flip side, I've just seen so many amazing teams working on business ideas that are so hard and maybe they can eke it out and get to a certain level of success, but it, but they're constantly pushing a boulder up the mountain. And so we look for, I think, concisely, first and foremost, looking for market pull but secondly, of course, like, you know, we would love to be backing um, amazing teams and with market pull. And, and that's kind of where things are. I think for teams that don't quite have market pull, then we have a cadence where we, you know, try to understand every so often whether it's there or not.
0: Right. No, it's great insight and, and very helpful. As you think about your culture, obviously the fund name is Hustle Fund. What does that mean in terms of how you and Eric manage your time? What does an average week look like? Based on what I've heard, you're doing a lot of different things. It's all great. But what does that look like on a day-to-day basis from an operational standpoint?
1: You know, it's funny, and I keep on harping about how VC funds, you know, tend to not be run like well-run businesses. And I think to the extent possible, we, we try to think about how would we run this as a VC backable business ourselves if we were to... And and I think one of the challenges is that very often partnerships, uh, whether it's Eric, Sheehan, or myself, the three GPs, we all tend to do the same things. We're looking at companies. We're investing in companies. We're talking to LPs. But when you think about it, at a streamlined company, you shouldn't be doing that. Like, there should be one person who's just talking to LPs. There should be one person who's just looking at deals and, and that sort of thing. You should have... Um, systematize operations that are specialized by person. That's what a company would do. You would never have like three co-CEOs. That would just be a disaster. But that's what VC firms essentially are. So to answer your question more concretely then, like this is something that we've struggled with a bit where it's like we cannot actually move to a model of how a company would be run because you know, our LPs would probably revolt. They would be like, we didn't back Elizabeth's companies. We want to see a diverse set of Elizabeth's companies at Eric's and Sheehan's. Like, she can't just, you know, I am the ball hog, but she can't, like, hog the ball all the time. So I think we have specialization to a certain extent, but still end up, we all do all of those things, you know, fundraising. Uh, looking at deal flow, deciding on companies, helping our portfolio companies. But to a certain extent, we are a bit more specialized. Like I, you know, to the extent possible, I I would say that I'm, quote, head of marketing. Eric is, quote, head of LPs. Um, Sheehan is, quote, head of special projects. And there are a number of different projects that we have internally that uh, we can't really talk about right now. But that's kind of how we we specialize a little bit
0: find it so critical that you say building hustle as a company versus a just raising a fund and there's so many aspects of why that's important there's one in particular that I want to hone in on and you know if you look at a traditional startup employees and founders don't make a lot of money there's an alignment toward the long term And yet there's this notion that VCs, regardless of their fund size, uh, make a lot of money. Can you maybe walk (laughs) us through what the economics really look like?
1: Yeah, I think people are so shocked and surprised. I mean, I'll I'll just tell you my salary here on, on this show. I mean, emerging managers do not get paid very much. And I think specifically, if we just take a step back, like, well, how do people get budget? it's not like I can use the fund money to pay for operations or myself. I mean, I think there are some things you can do. You can pay for a bit of legal and, and backups out of the fund money, but but you cannot pay yourself out of the fund money. So if you raise an $11.5 million fund like we did, um, our budget is actually 2% of that every year. So roughly $200,000 a year. And that's that's not my salary. That's the overall budget to cover pretty much everything, including marketing and travel and Eric's salary, my salary, she and salary, like you know anybody else we bring on board, et cetera. And200,000, although it might sound a lot as like one person's salary, it does not go far when you have all these people and other costs, et cetera. So initially uh, Eric and I didn't pay ourselves anything and then we started paying ourselves uh, I think it was just over $40,000 a year.
0: Wow, uh, and that's living in the Bay Area. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> that that very much does speak to the startup life. and it also provides a little bit of perspective on what you're aligned toward, which is really the long-term outcomes, the carry, building a long-term firm no different than an entrepreneurs. That's great. Now that you're in Hustle Fund, now it's been three years uh, where you've built, you've learned some lessons. What is the one thing, this is the final question, what is the one thing that you would tell aspiring VCs right now to do before starting?
1: Well, first, I would be very introspective and figure out if this is really what you want to do. And by that, I mean, what you're signing up for is mostly fundraising. I think people don't realize that. And it's mostly fundraising for, call it about four years and if you think that that sounds horrible, you will hate your life, I would recommend not doing it because there are plenty of other ways that I think you can invest these days without being a fund manager. Like even if you don't have money in your own right as an angel, you can start, you know, one of these, like for example, you can work with an angel list and come up with, you know, sort of a part-time fund of sorts or whatever. They now have their rolling funds as well, which I think can, can go to that. But being a full-time fund manager is a commitment. And for many people, it may just be better to kind of dabble and do a bit of investing here and there on the side. And that's what I would be introspective on. I think I've also run into a number of fund managers who previously were entrepreneurs or or were operators at a tech company, and they realized actually that they didn't like it. Like, they didn't like being a full-time fund manager. They actually really just wanted a different job in tech and maybe wanted to do some side angel investing. So I think those are very different and people don't actually realize how different, let's say, angel investing is from running a fund.
0: This is great, Elizabeth, and thank you so much for being on this show. Thanks, Amir. Thanks so much for listening to our episode with Elizabeth. To learn more about her, be sure to go to ventureunlock.substack.com where you'll find detailed notes from this show. If you're interested in learning more about venture, don't forget to subscribe.